Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Are you culinarily curious? All of the guests on our show today certainly are. You may know Melissa Clark from her regular columns in the New York Times food section or from one of her 45-odd cookbooks. We sit down with Melissa to learn what culinary curiosity drives this incredibly prolific author. Podcaster Emmanuel LaRoche is curious, too. After years of interviewing American chefs, this Frenchman covers that ground in conversations behind the kitchen door. We'll learn what he's discovered about our food culture today. And have you discovered the YouTube sensation, Pasta Grannies? Vicki Benison joins us to explain what led her to chronicle Italy's aging home cooks and what she discovered along the way. We're virtually traveling the world to learn what drives the culinary curiosity of the best on this week's Louisiana Eats. I'm Melissa Clark, and I am a food reporter and cookbook author. Since this program's debut in 2010, Louisiana Eats has had the pleasure of meeting a lot of cookbook writers, some touting their first book, others who've made a career of it. New York Times food writer Melissa Clark may be the most prolific recipe writer we've ever had in our studio. In addition to her weekly column, A Good Appetite, Melissa is the author of 45-odd cookbooks where she's covered topics ranging from ice cream to caviar, fine French cuisine to comfort food. Her most recent is called Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. I've been a fan of Melissa's writing going back to 1993 when she published The Bread Machine Cookbook. Her recipes are simple yet sophisticated and always satisfying. When we spoke, she discussed the art of recipe making and what led her to a life in food. Melissa Clark, I want to start at the beginning. So I know you grew up in Brooklyn. And what I have read is that perhaps you always wanted to be a writer, maybe a romance writer at the start. <laughs> How did you become Melissa Clark and acquire the culinary skills and the food knowledge? Well, you know, they grew up together for me in my head. I mean, I was always writing ever since I was a little kid. I wrote stories. Um, 
I don't know. Did you ever read Harriet the Spy? Of course when I did. When you were a kid. Of so, course I did. you know how she had her spy notebook? Yes. So, I had my, it wasn't a spy notebook, but it was just my notebook. And I just wrote down all of my random things. And I still have a notebook that I always carry around with me in my purse. And I'm just jotting down stuff. So, writing was always just part of the way that I functioned in the world. Um, and then, food was the other way. So, we are a foodie family. I grew up in a foodie family, the foodiest of the foodies in Brooklyn. And I didn't know that I could become a food writer until I was in college. And um, I actually wanted to write um, I wanted to write historical novels. I wanted, you know, I, I, I like Barbara Tuckman. Okay. I thought I was going to write like early modern or 19, early 19th century based novels. And then I picked up MFK Fisher, like a lot of food writers, right? So I, I thought, well, you know, I, I want to write this. I want to write about the world, but I want to write about it through food. But at that exact moment, there was this thing called the internet that happened. And all of a sudden, people needed content that was about food. And I could write whatever I wanted. People would pay me money to write whatever I wanted about food. It was amazing, Poppy. It was it was like the best time. And the cooking, you know, for a brief moment in there, I thought I wanted to be a chef. So oh. I worked in restaurants. I started a catering company when I was in college. Um, and I had always cooked, so I always knew how to cook. I knew the basics from my family, but I, I learned a little more on the professional side. So I read that your first, like, professional kitchen glimpse, um, you were a coat check girl at an American place? Exactly. So an American place was this coat check job that I had. And I would sneak in the back and go to the kitchen all the time because I was always looking for handouts on the food. I'm like, you have any of that pecan pie back there? Or what about that lemon meringue pie? But I would watch the chefs work. And it was always amazing to me because as a home cook, you know, I had, especially then, like I had a really small kitchen in my apartment. Um, But even, you know, in my parents' house when I was growing up, I mean, we cooked practically and efficiently. And in a professional kitchen, it's a whole other way to cook. You know, professional chefs, um, they're using so many pots and pans and dishes to create one single dish because they don't have to worry about it. They have dishwashers, they have assistants, they have um, people making their whole mise en place so it's all chopped and ready for them. And it was almost like a whole other, like, I was like, this is cooking, but this is not how I cook. So I had this memory of watching the chefs just like, you know, the, throwing the dishes the were pile, Throwing the pans. The dishes would pile up in the sink, and then somebody would come and clean them for them and bring them back. And when I started writing cookbooks with chefs, I was like, okay, listen, this has to stop because this is not how we are in, in a home kitchen. And I already knew what I was up against. I knew that it was me, my job to take those recipes and just wrestle them into something that you and I can do at our home kitchens. And so that started early. I believe your first book was the bread machine cookbook. <laughs> exactly. Is that correct? Oh my gosh, you're going back. You well, I, I just you know, I was so fascinated. I'm so fascinated by you. I always have been. And so then... Who did you first have to break into this idea of cutting down on the pots and pans, etc.? Well, so the first chef that I wrote a cookbook with, I didn't do the recipes. I only did the voice. I did the head notes and I told their story. And that was um, Sylvia Woods up in Harlem. She had a restaurant called Sylvia's, very yes. famous soul food restaurant. <sighs> but then the first recipe book that I wrote with a chef was, um, I, I did this book called the Nantucket Restaurants Cookbook. 
I saw that book. And that was with chefs all across the island of Nantucket. And so I really learned. It was like learning from the best teachers to have these chefs teach me. Oh, yes, Melissa. Let's see. If I had to pick some cooking teachers, um, I would join you in classes with Tom Colicchio, Danny Meyer, Danielle Ballou. David Booley. <laughs> what a fabulous, fabulous life it has been to do these things. It, it's just great. It's just learning, constantly learning. It's always thrilling because there's always so much to learn. You know what I mean? You know how you never stop learning? Yeah. Like, you just never stop learning. Also, since 2007, you've been writing a good appetite in the New York Times. How do you continuously turn out... I, I think maybe there's over 1,400 recipes that you've published in the New York Times, or is it 4,000? Like, where does this creative juice come from? I just, I'm, I'm obsessed. You know, I just always think about food. Like, right now, I'm thinking about food. I, I've just always, I mean, think of how many meals you cook in your lifetime, right? So if you wrote down all of those meals, you'd have those many recipes too. It's just a matter of like writing. And I, I keep, okay, so you know my notebook thing? I have a notebook in my bag. I have yeah. a notebook in the kitchen too. For budding cookbook authors, for people who are writing recipes, what do you think the most important thing to keep in mind is? Well, for, first thing is trust yourself. You know better than anybody else. You know what you like to eat. You probably know how to get there, even if you're a little bit nervous and you're not sure. Um, but trust yourself. So that's the first thing is you know best. Um, and then the second thing that's really important for people who are writing, you know, who are like putting together recipes is imagine telling your best friend who doesn't cook how to make the dish. I also kind of feel like every recipe's sort of been done. So like, not that it's going to be totally new, but there's probably ways of doing things that we're just not connected with in our culture right now that maybe other cultures do. The world is such a big place. Um, and then, which leads me to my last thing, cook from other cultures, cook from people's books, cookbooks, try new things, try new flavors. If you see an ingredient in the store that you've never seen before, bring it home and try to figure out what to do with it. The internet will tell you. There's always, the internet is there for you. So don't be afraid. You know, try something new. Recipe testing. How many recipe testers do you have? What do you do about that with all the the prolific number of dishes? Yeah, um, I have. Um, so I have two recipe testers. One comes to me once a week. She um, is amazing. Uh, all my recipe testers are me. I mean, I've had met over the years. I've had. I've always had. You know, one at a time. Um, and so I have someone who comes in to work with me once a week and we cook together. And so she's really a partner in helping me develop and think about the recipes and testing them. She's my backbone. And then I have someone else who I send stuff to who does it in her kitchen far away who used to work with me in my kitchen. And I don't send her every recipe. I send her the ones that I'm like, this needs an outside perspective. Maybe it's a tricky technique that I know I can do. Um, but most of the weeknight stuff is stuff I'm cooking for my family. And then I'll write it down and then I'll bring it in and we'll work on it. And I love any time I can save work. I am there and I am trying it. Same thing with a sheet pan meal. I was I didn't invent the sheet pan meal, but I was the second I heard about it, I was there and coming up with dishes for it because I love nothing more than putting everything on a sheet pan and putting it in my oven and then not thinking about it for 30 minutes. That makes me happy. Then I can like make my salad, make my cocktail, hang out with my family, and then dinner's ready. 
Well, Melissa, for all the folks out there who feel the same way, dinner in one is the answer to their dreams. So thanks for writing number 45. (laughs) And really and truly thanks for talking with us today. Oh, thank you, Poppy. It was so great to talk with you. That was Melissa Clark, New York Times food columnist and cookbook author. Her latest volume is Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals. Coming up next, we meet Vicki Benison, creator of the YouTube series Pasta Grannies. Vicki's new book offers a dazzling collection of time-perfected pasta recipes from Italy's grandmothers. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness, always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. How New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets. Tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand. Beans done right, now celebrating 100 years of New Orleans tradition. Celebrate with Camellia by sharing your family's favorite bean stories. Email me at poppy at poppytooker.com to share in the celebration. When Americans think about Italian cuisine, our thoughts tend to be about pasta. But it's not just generic bags and boxes of the dried stuff you'll find at your grocery store. Pasta can be as unique as the person preparing it. That's what Vicki Benison explores in her popular YouTube series, Pasta Grannies, which takes her across Italy into the kitchens of everyday women preparing the signature dish in every possible way. With a new video every week, I travel across Italy collecting pasta-making techniques and traditions passed down the generations. From the rarest pasta in the world, ravioli cooked to perfection. In 2019, Vicky adapted her Pasta Granny's web series into a James Beard award-winning cookbook of the same name.
And in 2022, she released a follow-up entitled Comfort Cooking, Traditional Family Recipes from Italy's Best Home Cooks. When we spoke, I began by asking the British-born author and filmmaker how she got inspired to preserve the stories of Italian grandmothers. Because I am an Italian resident, um, and whilst I was kind of um, foraging around looking at local food traditions, I noticed that it was only older women who were making pasta by hand on a daily basis. So I thought, oh, you know, that's interesting. Um, and then it became apparent that, you know, this tradition domestically was dying out. So I thought, well, someone has to make a record of this. And that someone turned out to be me. Um, and it became very obvious very rapidly that actually I needed to video these lovely ladies because, you know, the physicality of pasta making, the rhythm and the uh, and the sort of the way that these ladies talk to their dough uh, uh, needs video rather than words or photographs. Um, so never having picked up a, a video camera before, that's what I did. And part of your impetus was that you did not see this tradition being carried on in younger generations. Like the Italians could be in peril of losing their pasta making skills. You know, they're not going to be losing handmade pasta. I think it's been professionalized. The difference between that and uh, their grandmothers is that the grandmothers have a muscle memory and a kind of innate instinctive way of making pasta um, that can only be achieved by years and years and years of, of um, the practice of pasta making, doing it on a daily basis. And, you know, in the beginning, so I've been doing this for about nine years. And in the beginning, it, the important thing was sort of capturing all the different pasta shapes that women were making. Um, and it's it's evolved because um, the, the pasta is still important. Um, but in fact, it's the stories of the women and, and the women themselves and their characters and um, that have become just as important, um, you know, celebrating the older woman, if you like. So how in the world did you get the performance you needed out of these grannies? Well, by keeping it as informal as possible. Um, so we use small cameras and we're not like TV. We don't come in with major lights and ask them to rehearse. And, you know, um, we kind of come in and, and have a chat <laughs> in Italian. Um, and, you know, they make pasta for us. They don't make pasta for YouTube. So of course we then sit down and eat it. <laughs> so three or four times a day. And so that's, that's very lovely. And I think, you know, the fact that we all can speak Italian um, and that Livia, my granny finder, um, would have spoken to them beforehand so that we're not complete strangers when we walk into their kitchen um, makes all the difference. I think I saw one who's a hundred and was 101 years old. So in the nine years, you must have lost some of them. Yes, yes, we do. We lose... Well, it varies every year, but I mean, at least three or four a year um, um, pass away. Um, so that's always a great sadness. It's like losing a favorite aunt. But that's why we're also in a hurry. I mean, we, 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 we're, we're kind of especially keen on meeting the over 90s <laughs> so, um, because for them, the changes have been the most dramatic because they're the ones who, are, you know, um, teenagers around the Second World War, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, Italy experienced that sort of huge economic boom in the 50s. So, you know, the 60-year-olds 
um, already have a quite a different life experience to their to their mothers. Now, Vicky, you were a print journalist prior to this, right? <laughs> um, I've written several uh, cookery books. Yeah, I didn't sort of wake up and go, "Oh, I'm going to be a documentary filmmaker today." Um, it sort of happened gradually. Um, you know, what really I suppose the thing that really interests me is storytelling. And sometimes storytelling um, takes the form of words and sometimes it's photography and sometimes it's video. And and I think if you can sort of think about what it is that um, your story best suits, then you're a storyteller or whatever, if that makes sense. So the videos came first and the books came after. How did you decide, okay, now it's going to be a book? Yes, I, I think the books speak to the videos. I think, you know, video, I think, act, activates a different bit of the brain to reading about someone or a recipe. I think they complement each other. And, um, you know, video is a bit like fast food and, and reading a book is a, is a little bit like, you know, crocheting or something like that. It's a sort of slow thing. It's a Zen thing to sort of read the written word. And, and so... Um, the book also allows you to tell stories in a different way. And, and so you can spend more time with them that way. This is the most interactive cookbook I've ever seen because you've got these QR codes. So if someone is captivated by a recipe, they can just scan it and it'll take them right to your YouTube video. Yes, yes. I think I think that's brilliant. So I think it's such fun. And because you can read about it and then go, oh, I don't quite know what that means. And, and then goes sort of straight to the video. And, you know, you actually meet the grandmother personally, because not all, you know, we haven't got a photograph for every recipe. Um, so that's quite nice to actually meet the grandmothers. How many grannies are covered in the books? And how many do you have access to on video? So um, I could only fit 60 um, grandmothers into book two and um, 60, I think it was a bit more than that, about 70 in book one. And um, I've filmed over 400 uh, women. Uh, so, so, you know, go to the YouTube channel and meet them all. Were you surprised by the responses you received? Yes, very much so. I mean, you know, uh, in terms of um, starting out, it's like three years of only having about, you know, 200 people or, or something. And then by the end of 2017, it was 5,000 people. And I thought that was pretty good going. And then it went up to a million overnight. And um, it was it was like, wow. whoa, what's happening? Um, and, you know, the numbers still are increasing and, and the audience is global. Um and actually, during the pandemic, uh, there was a sixty percent increase in in viewing, um, and and a lot of people, dozens and dozens of people, wrote to me um, and said that pasta grannies kept them going. You know that whenever they're feeling stressed or down, um, they have a dose of pasta grannies, and so that's why book two is called Comfort Cooking. It's a response to everybody going, "Oh, you know, pasta grannies really helps me." So I always say that, you know, people come for the pasta and stay for the grannies. That was Vicki Benison, award-winning cookbook author and creator of the popular YouTube channel, Pasta Grannies.
My name is Emmanuel Laroche, and my book is Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door, 50 American Chefs Chart Today's Food Culture. In his new book, podcaster Emmanuel Laroche compiles dialogues he's had with an impressive array of America's culinary talent, a real who's who of chefs, mixologists, and innovators. Among the local names you might recognize are chefs Michael Galata and Alex Harrell. By compiling their personal insights and stories, Emmanuel presents an intimate look into the world of American cuisine, a topic he explores with passion and curiosity. Well, Emmanuel, welcome to Louisiana Eats, and anybody who is listening will know that you are definitely a Frenchman. Tell me about why food has always been your life and what led you to be so interested in American food. First, thank you so much for having me on your show. I really appreciate the invitation. I grew up in a family where food was very important. My parents were from the northeast part of France, so the Lorraine area. Um, and um, I learned from my mom um, how to make a quiche Lorraine from scratch when I was probably eight years old. And then when I grew up, uh, my studies were focused on chemistry. So I did an organic chemistry, a master of chemistry, and then I did marketing and, and um, you know, and business. Yeah, I loved it. So when um, I moved to the U.S. in 2002, um, in uh, for my work, I was connected with a lot of uh, chefs to get inspiration, you know, from uh, chefs and pastry chefs and mixologists. Um, I established a partnership with um, Star Chefs, um, and that's how I started to do panel discussions and moderate panel discussion with culinary leaders. And I wanted personally to continue that discussion beyond, I would say, um, what I was doing for my company. Would you explain what Star Chefs is? Sure. So this is an, an agency, kind of a marketing agency that um, really uh, is um, here to um, support uh, and promote the culinary scene in, in the U.S. Your whole point seems to be to try to discover where their creativity originates and comes from. Mm -hmm. What is it that you learned on that exploration? Very good question. Yes, that's always fascinated me because I am one person that every time goes to the restaurants, I look at the menu and I always want to try something that I do not know. I'm fascinated with certain association of flavors and I always want to understand what this idea, you know, where it's coming from. Um, and I always want to go to the kitchen and talk to the chef. <laughs> so, the, the, you know, what I have uh, really learned from them is, in fact, there's like common things, you know, common themes. So obviously inspiration for a lot of them comes from the produce, um, like the work that they are doing with farmers, with purveyors, you know, seafood, um, you know, meat uh, farmers. And um, they they are inspired. They, they see something new and something pops up in their brain. You know, it's what I call like activating the flavor memory database that they have, uh, you know, um, gathered through their 
you know, educations and, and doing tastings. Um, other elements are um, uh, childhood memories. That's really um, a, a big part of where the inspiration comes from. Another aspect, it travels. I think that's what I really enjoy hearing from a lot of those chefs and mixologists is the inspiration that they got when they travel somewhere and how they prepare their trips and uh, how they make sure that they, um, you know, turn like any kind of, um, you know, like rocks and <laughs> look for like new inspiration um, music as well. You know, I, I can remember some... Uh, stories from Jimmy Bissonnette, for instance, in um, Boston, um, you know, listening to music and, and different style of music and being inspired by because some image will pop it in his brain and he's wondering, you know, what kind of food he will associate with that or, you know, that type of thing. So songs and music is another source of inspiration to them. Well, I know that your family in France asks you the question all the time, what is American food? So for me, it's a blend of different things. Is like classic dishes. You are thinking about, you know, clam chowders. You're, you know, thinking about, um, you know, the different style of barbecues, for instance, from the different regions, you know, like uh, shrimp and grits, you know, for instance, that's one aspect. And then I, I call like the roadside riches, you know, in the book, it's one chapter about it where I really like to go in different parts of the country and discover different things. So like fried, you know, peanuts, for instance, you know, in the South that you can you know, tastes like uh, in some of the gas stations, you know, that's, that's really fascinating to me. Um, and then the, the big aspect is the, um, uh, the influence of, I would say that the son and the daughters of the immigrants, first generation, second generation, that's a big impact at the moment. So there's a lot of uh, chefs that I've interviewed on my podcast, maybe 20, 1520s that, um, you know, are coming either from a background like Filipino or, um, you know, Mexican or uh, coming from Peru and, and so on. And um, so for me that the, the, the food culture is um, really um, always evolving here in the U.S. and it's definitely linked to the history of immigration of this country. I love your concept, Emmanuel, of how the kitchen um, is a metaphor for life. How is that, and what do you what do you mean by that? For me, there's a lot of advice um, at the personal level, at the level of um, you know how to handle food, and as well how to be a leader um, on your personal life, but as well if you have like a team to manage that are beyond being a chef um, and people that are reading the book can really, uh, you know, get some really interesting tips, you know, how to manage their life. Well, it's a fascinating book and um, I am so glad that uh, you've taken us all on this trip behind the kitchen door. Thank you so much for talking with us on Louisiana Eats, Emmanuel. Thank you very much. I really appreciate um, you know for you to invite me to be on your show. That was Emmanuel LaRoche, author of Conversations Behind the Kitchen Door. Fifty American chefs chart today's food culture. was Diana Kennedy, and what made her so culinarily curious? 
Stay tuned, and we'll explore that topic when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Winter on the North Shore brings king cake flavored must-haves and Mardi Gras festivities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. Who was Diana Kennedy, and what made her so culinarily curious? British-born Diana Kennedy is the cookbook author who deciphered Mexico's varied and complex cuisines over a 40-year period. In that time, she had great influence on many of today's Mexican food superstars, like Rick Bayless. It all began with her 1957 marriage to Paul Kennedy, a New York Times correspondent who brought Diana to live in Mexico, where her food adventures began. Following her husband's death in 1967, Diana lived in New York, where she taught Mexican cooking at places like the esteemed Peter Kump's Cooking School and made friends with other influential food folks, like New York Times writer Craig Claiborne. At his urging, she first published her seminal book, The Cuisines of Mexico, in 1972. Diana revised that important work many times. Her final revision in 1986 remains in print today. Diana went to live permanently in Mexico in 1976. For Diana, her most important work was a lot more than recipes. She strove to accurately chronicle the culture of all Mexico's varied cuisines. At her home in Zitacuaro, she held cooking classes, wrote an additional eight books, starred in a 26-part television series for the Learning Channel, and became very influential in environmental work, 
establishing the Diana Kennedy Foundation, which continues today in support of her work and Mexican home, Quinta Diana, which remains open for food scholars and other visitors. Diana Kennedy passed away in July of 2022, but her work remains relevant and important today. I wish I'd had an opportunity to meet her. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. My name is Marty Buckley, and I'm the author of Basque Country. When Marty Buckley was a student at LSU studying Spanish, she hoped the study abroad program would place her in a Spanish city she was somewhat familiar with, like Madrid or Barcelona. Instead, she was sent to Pamplona, the second largest city in the greater Basque cultural region. During her visit, Marty became seduced by the picturesque territory's distinct culture and cuisine and vowed she would one day return. After college, Marty spent two years in her native Alabama, where she worked for Southern Living Magazine and trained in the kitchen with revered Southern chef Frank Stitt. When she was given the opportunity to move back to Spain, she didn't hesitate. Taking her partner and two-year-old daughter with her, Marty settled in the coastal city of San Sebastián in northern Basque country. She was planning to stay for just one year, but has remained ever since. Just by skimming the pages of her cookbook, Basque Country, it's obvious how enamored Marty is with the region and its people. When we spoke, I began by asking her how a southern expat has come to identify so strongly with an area of northern Spain. Well, I mean, I think in part, I mean, who doesn't like to eat and drink well and live next to the ocean and the mountains? I mean, it's just an easy, easy place to fall in love with, as anybody who has visited San Sebastian can vouch. But, you know, I do feel like there is an affinity between Southerners and Basque people. On one hand, kind of everybody else in your respective country is like, what's up with those people? So I feel like the Spaniards think that about Basque people. And sometimes I feel like American, you know, the rest of the country thinks that about the South. Um, and then also I felt like very at home around the table there because food for them is everything. And it's very important. And that's something growing up in Alabama and also having lived in Louisiana for a few years as well was something very familiar to me. There's seven different regions in Basque country. Would you demystify that for us? Sure, sure. So Basque country, as you said, is seven different regions. Four of those are in Spain, in the north, and then three of them are in the south of France. But Basque country predates the formation of Spain, the country, and France, the country. So rather than dividing it by that, I often tend to think of it as divided by coastal Basques and interior Basques, because that's where the real difference comes in the traditions, in the labor force, and in the food. So the Basques on the coast, you know, they are eating a lot of seafood. They often work out on the boats. They use quick cooking techniques like grilling and light sauces, um, more influenced 
by the water around them. And then the interior basques, the mountain basques, those are the shepherds. And those are where you're going to have the long stews and the more meat and more dairy products, usually sheep's, sheep's milk. And so that's where I really see the division rather than modern geopolitical divisions like Spain or France. You know, everybody, I think, thinks that that way of eating with little plates is really tapas, but it's really something different, isn't it? What's it called? Well, probably the famous Basque export is the pincho. So pincho is not tapas. Tapas are from the south of Spain. They can sometimes be free. They're usually a plate of one ingredient, whereas the pincho is different. The pincho is also a small bite, but it can be, it's usually something skewered on a toothpick or served on a piece of bread, or even nowadays an elaborate creation with haute cuisine leanings. So it's, you always pay for it. It's um, usually a little bit more elaborate than a tapa. Well, I'd never thought of this before, but I understand that in this culture, they don't really have side dishes. Right. It's an interesting way of eating. So they're not always eating pinchos. That's kind of like a nighttime special thing. Um, Usually they're eating around the table at their house or at a restaurant. And so there you get first course, second course. First course is usually a vegetable, usually just one thing like a white asparagus, maybe with a vinaigrette dressing. And then the second course is the star and that's the protein. And it's either fish or squid or steak or meat. And so, yeah, they just go one at a time, which is perhaps why their lunches are three hours long. (laughs) (laughs) It is a wonderful way to dine and Mm -hmm. a wonderful place to be. Everything, just as I read through the book, continues to be so completely different from what we think of in Europe and certainly what we have here. Their shopping is very different, for instance. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's Shopping there converts itself from like a duty that you get into your hot car and drive out to the supermarket to do into a pleasure. I mean, you definitely have supermarkets there, but you also have farmers markets and fish markets right in the center of town, right at hand. And you have stalls and shops that specialize in one thing. So you'll go to one place for your sausage, and then you'll go to another for your leeks, and then you'll go to another for your squid. And you kind of form relationships with people. And it's a really beautiful way to buy your food. And it really instills a respect for food. Marty, the way you just described the shopping sounds a lot like one of their cooking expressions, something that they describe as little by little. So you're certainly doing that little by little (laughs) sort of shopping. What is little by little when it comes to the cooking? Right. So in Basque, that's poliki poliki. And they rely on fresh, fresh ingredients. And they don't add spices. They don't cook with herbs. I mean, we're talking salt, garlic, olive oil, and when they're feeling a little crazy, some parsley. So it's like, how does the food taste so good? Well, often they rely on a base of really caramelized onions, or they're relying on a long stewing. And so you have some quick cooking, but you also have um, some dishes that are based on a longer cooking methods. And it really is the time that's like the secret ingredient in a lot of these dishes. Americans cooking out of your book, are they going to have a hard time with any of the ingredients? Well, okay, so this book, I wrote it for the American cook, with the American cook in mind. 
However, I did also write it for the Basque. So I think there's probably, you know, four or five recipes that I don't anticipate people making. What would those they be? Just like to what? Be is, is it because they're just like too far out? <laughs> well, in some cases, it's because of the ingredient. For example, the angulak. Those are baby eels. They're really not valued enough to be fished in America. And there, they are valued highly to the tune of $600 a pound. Yeah, so it's a special occasion food, and it's prepared very simply. An American home cook could easily make it, but it is a very local product. So that's one. And then there are some a couple other recipes that I imagine might not be the most popular in the book, like the, <laughs> the blood sausage, which is, you know, you have to have access to fresh blood to make. And it sounds very scary, but it really is so delicious. Who shared the recipes with you? How did you learn to do this kind of cooking? (laughs) Well, it's a a lot of eating on one hand. And then um, it was really an interesting process because anybody who has ever cooked from a Spanish or Basque cookbook knows that they don't tend to delineate the steps as carefully as American cookbooks. So you might, might read, cook the fish make the sauce. And if you don't have like a Basque grandma next to you, then you're never going to know what to do. So um, I did a little research in books, but actually relied heavily on a group of chefs that I knew. So I tried to get a chef from each province that I could, because I didn't want it to be a San Sebastian-centric book. So I had a team of chefs that I could call up at any time of the night and ask questions to. And then I also really had this group of retired old men that were very helpful. I would, you know, and there's like these, some of the dishes are more controversial, we could say. And so I would call them up and say, can I just watch you make cocotas or watch you make hake? And they would be super happy to make that dish with me. And then I would take copious notes and go home and test it out with my American measurements and timing and everything. And so there was it was a combination of both research and firsthand cooking with people. Well, Marty, you've really got me confused because I understood from reading your book that the Basque are really a matriarchal people. Mm. So how in the heck are you getting the advice on cooking from the old men? Would you explain <laughs> this to me? Yes. So, well, I should say I also had a group of, you know, friends' moms helping me. It was not just men. But actually, the very fact that the Basques are a matriarchal society and the woman has had a lot of the control in the household means that the men got tired of that, I guess. And they would look for sort of a refuge. And that really gave rise to these cooking clubs that started in the latter half of the 19th century in San Sebastian. And they became sort of a refuge outside of the house where men could go. And so there's been this whole culture on the side of men cooking and sort of competing to see who could make the best steak or whatever. And so they have um, men cooking as much, if not more, than the women. Well, they actually do have cooking competitions. Well, those, yes. Every village has a party, and every party has a cooking competition. And so you can literally hop from weekend to weekend to different villages and just catch all the different festivals. Well, it really just does sound like a little piece of heaven on earth, (laughs) particularly for someone who is a serious foodie. Like, obviously, we both are. Thank you so much for writing this beautiful book because it's like a virtual trip, a, (laughs) a trip into a really amazing place 
that I suspect many Americans are unfamiliar with. Well, thank you. That, that was what I wanted. You know, that's the effect I wanted. And to encourage people to get off the beaten track and to show this culture, which is just so amazing to me. Thank you, Marty. Thank you for having me. That was journalist and blogger Marty Buckley, author of Basque Country, a culinary journey through a food lover's paradise. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlow and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladu. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 